Hi, and welcome to the Markeisha Hall podcast. I'm your host, Markeisha Hall, Master IEP coach, parent empowerment partner, and certified autism travel professional. Today, I have a very special guest, author Aaron Wright. He has a book coming out called 13 Doors. He writes about his family's quest toward a free and appropriate education for his daughter, diagnosed with autism at an early age. So I'm going to let um, Aaron introduce himself. Here we go. Hi, Marquisha. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate uh, you having me on and the opportunity. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly where to start, but uh, I am the parent of two wonderful children. Um, uh, the My youngest, my daughter, uh, is autistic, uh, which mm-hmm. is where our, our paths cross. Yes. Uh, and the inspiration really behind uh, why I wrote my book Um and I think also the other point where we cross is with your uh, work in terms of advocacy in IEPs, yes. uh, which really is the the thrust of the story and, and why I wrote the book. Um, I think uh, I'm not sure how f- much you've explored the topic um, with your listeners, but I, I think there's really there's one big fundamental problem, I think, with the special education system. Uh-huh is that uh, parents often find themselves uh, having to fight the system that's supposed to be there to be supportive uh, of them. Um, And that can become uh, crazy and twisted and entangled and really fraught for um, both sides. I think ultimately, um, you know, teachers and parents really are on the same side of this issue. But there's an excuse me. There's a you know inherent conflict of interest uh, in in that system, and that you have uh, the folks responsible for identifying uh, disabilities, also the ones who are responsible ultimately for uh, essentially paying for them or providing services. Right. So it's it's a little bit um, or a lot of bit uh, of a conflict. So yeah. it, it puts it pull, it puts schools and systems where. Um, often they can push back against identifying children, um, which is our story, which is uh, why I put it in print. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, I say at the end of the book, I think that the special needs, and I, I don't particularly care for that term, I think more disability community, um, needs a Me Too movement, uh, mm-hmm. you know, needs kind of a, a coming together and really bringing an awareness to the general public of, of kind of what happens on a day in day out basis, uh, yeah. families like ours. Uh, but I think the only way to do that is through sharing stories. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to have been um, affect, affected by uh, misogyny or been the victim of sexual assault to be supportive of the Me Too movement, right? Absolutely, yes. You don't have to be African-American to be supportive of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Uh, but you have to have, you know, there has to be some baseline understanding and awareness. Mm-hmm. And I really think that uh, the key to solving um, this problem is through awareness and is through the sharing of stories. Um, so, um you know, when we were going through our experience, I really reached out and looked for, and especially as I started writing, I thought, oh my gosh, somebody has had to have put this story down in print before. Right. Um, and I was really surprised that I hadn't found 
really that much, um, you know, a lot of factual kind of nonfiction um, how-to type stuff in terms of right. navigating that world. Uh, but not really a lot of kind of the sharing the essence of how difficult this uh, this journey can be uh, for parents. Right. Um, and I want to be clear, you know, I've never had um, uh, any problem or, you know, grief about who my child is. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the grief and the uh, difficulty I've had has always been with the system that was supposed to be there to help and support and, and grant her access to, absolutely, really to a world that's not built for people like, like her. Right. So. I totally, under, I found, um, there's, I was a former special education teacher and I think we were talking that there weren't that many girls, right. um, that are identified anyway, um, right. until maybe late, later on. And I think that was the case with your, um, with your daughter and so I am super um, interested in, in the topic. And I like that your book isn't like a how-to. It's really like about families and, and your family. And that's what um, brought us together when I started looking at those things, because it wasn't like a how-to. It was, this is our story. Yeah. And I think that resonates with, with families. And I believe it is through sharing of stories that it comes um, more understanding. And I totally agree too about, um, inclusion or not just like special needs or autism, autism moms, or all the, I don't want to say groups, all the groups that we have are mm -hmm. really encouraged to, we need everybody. Yeah. They have the, you, other, need, you need allies, right? We need allies. They got to care. They got to want to invite our kiddos to the birthday parties and, and have them on the soccer teams and, you know, all those things that um, I know that before we adopted Joe that I took for granted. I didn't know I was taking it for granted until we had a child um, that's on the spectrum. Yeah. And so, yeah, we do need those. We need those allies. Yeah. Well, and that's <clears throat> that really gets to the core of, the, of why I wrote the book the way I did. Um, I tend to take deep dives down, down random rabbit holes. But um, one of the things I've learned um, is that people really gravitate to stories. Um, they, people like to feel like they can experience what you're experiencing too. And I think that helps develop empathy, which we all have, but it's, you know, it's a muscle that we have to flex right. periodically. And I think, you know, certainly during COVID and the lack of, um, you know, interpersonal interactions that we, we can have with people that we really now are acutely aware of how much we crave and need other people's perspectives. Absolutely. Um, but in being able to read it, I think having that in front of you and being able to walk with somebody as they're traveling along a journey, um, you know, you don't personally have to have experienced it to understand what that person is feeling. Right. Um, and I wanted to, um, I think there are certain pers perspectives of um, parents of children with disabilities. Um, you kind of get typecast into certain, certain ways. Um, you know, you're always, some people kind of, you're the loudmouth parent that's always in the principal's office, you know, screaming about, you know, something that your child really doesn't need or deserve. Right. Um, and so I really wanted to, 
humanize um, our experience and let people give people a window insight into, you know, this was transformative for me. Um, you know, certainly having um, a disabled child was not something that I ever consciously thought about before we ever had children. Right. Um, and even after that, I was kind of awakened to that, that yes, we do in fact have a child with a disability. Um, it still was a progression, you know, that, that role of, of parent as an advocate isn't just something that automatically happens. You always kind of have that instinctual, um, you know, I'm going to protect my child uh, right. feelings within you. Um, but you really, uh, you've got to educate yourself about how the system works and how to navigate things and how to build uh, relationships. And if those relationships don't work, you know, what kind of uh, steps or means of redress do I have to, um, to really help and protect my child and, and grant them access? So right. I wanted people to see, um, you know, our experience obviously was our own unique experience, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that the experience is um, uncommon, if that makes any sense, right? Everybody kind of has their own, <clears throat> everybody's kind of got their own flavor of something, but it's, yes. it all kind of fits in the same grouping of uh, experiences that, that, that don't really work. Right. Um, you know, when you're, when you're facing kind of that system, like I said, that's, um, you know, designed um, to really help and protect, but um, the fatal flaw in that design is that it can equally be used to kind of neglect and deny or push back against. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's, uh, when I first started um, kind of talking about the story with other people, I, I took deep dives down statistic rabbit holes and, and looked for hard facts and numbers. Um, I like them just because it's uh, it's helpful for me to understand uh, processes. But again, that's why I wrote the story as a narrative, not as a kind of nonfiction uh, uh, how-to manual. But in the U.S., uh, the the typical special education enrollment is about thirteen and a half percent. Okay. Um, so of, of the entire U.S. student body, 13.5% are on an IEP mm -hmm. or have some form of special education enrollment. But the estimates, um, current estimates, are that about one in five children have a disability. Right. So you're talking about, over, you know, 7.5% uh, of children um, really aren't supported, you know, not having their disability, you know, formally and lawfully uh, supported. Right. Um, and I think the, the real reason for that is that inherent uh, conflict within the system, um, you know, where uh, one of the analogies um, I like to use is that, uh, you know, I'm sure you, you, you probably knew or know that your child has a dis disability before you go to
I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It was going to co- shut off. And um, I'm sure my son was in here while I was uh, well, away this morning. So you were just saying that. Oh, uh, yes. So it's the way I describe um, the way I describe kind of the inherent conflict uh, in the system is that, you know, imagine if you had a physical disability, right, that you required a, a wheelchair for uh, to get around, to be mobile. Yeah. And that was your way of accessing the world. Um, well, a lot of, you know, these children, majority of them don't have physical disabilities or, you know, developmental. Um, my father um, recently had just kind of this bout of multiple surgeries, had both hips replaced, had some surgery on his back, uh, had a hernia repaired. And his doctor, you know, gave him a slip that he took to the DMV and, the, you know, so that he could get a, a, a placard so that he right. could use the, the blue parking stall. Right. Um, now, just about everybody who has a disabled child knows that there's knows that this child is, has some sort of a disability. Um, and oftentimes, uh, you know, they've gone to their pediatrician and they might have some sort of documentation or proof. Um, or at least inkling, right, that there's an issue. Now imagine going to the DMV, right, with your your doctor's note saying, you know, I require a wheelchair in order to to, to get around, so I need a, a blue placard. But then having the DMV say, nah, no, mm-hmm. sorry, I'm going to run my own test first. Right, right, right. Which is how the school system works. Right. Um, and them being fully within their right to say, no, you don't actually deserve that placard because Ooh, they're ultimately you're getting, the ones having you're getting some points here. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting some points here. I, I, I've experienced this and that yeah. sounds crazy. I do know what I'm, I'm a special education teacher, so I'm very familiar with it. But with our son, what you're saying right now is it, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't discriminate. <laughs> That's why it's no. important to know. That's why it's no. important to know what your rights are and what you, um, what you, what recourse you can take right. ahead of time. It's so important because that's exactly what happened. And I felt like I was um, having to prove how autistic my baby was, and no. I was like, I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm not going to be filming him and be like, and see, and this is what it doesn't have a particular look. It doesn't have a pretty, everyone, just like we shouldn't have to say, if you meet one person with autism, you meet one person because every, all of us are individuals. Yeah. So someone could be born the same day, the same year. There's people that have the same name. We're different. Yeah. Everyone's different. It's not just because they're autist, uh, autistic that they are different. Right. So they have different traits. I mean. You shouldn't have to meet some, and you shouldn't have to meet some arbitrarily high benchmark. Um, to prove that you're exquisitely disabled in order to get access. Right. Um, Agreed. I, you know, instead of the, that law or the IDEA being used as a door, um, which is why I use 13 doors as the, cause there are 13, 13, yeah, 13 categories of disability under the IDEA. Um, rather than those being just opened, you know, they're, they're, they're used as roadblocks or used as things that you have to try and get through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be incredibly frustrating. And it's not, uh, it doesn't serve anyone other than, um, you know, someone's 
potentially someone's financial interests. Mm -hmm. But I, I do want to make the point, um, you as a special education teacher, and then you as a parent, you are on the same side. Yeah. I don't know how many times we've had conversations with, um, you know, whether it's educators or therapists, school-based therapists. Um, I really think that X, Y, Z should be happening, but I just can't. Yes. Right. And there's, you know, there's that restriction placed upon um, what they think is best practice. Right. Um, because of that administrative function of that school. Yes. And it's, it, it's, it's maddening. <clears throat> Some parents, I, I think I really, I have a lot of privilege um, and writing the book was a privilege. Um, and while I was writing it, <clears throat> I was really thinking about a lot of the families who don't have the same access that I do, right? They didn't have the same resources to be able to push back Absolutely. Uh, and fight or find an advocate Mm -hmm. um, find an attorney or even having the wherewithal to, you know, go on Amazon right. and, and look for, you know, how to get my child an IEP type book. Yes. Yes. Um, or the time to do that. Right. 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 And it's, uh, I, there's a additional pretty heavy burden placed on families of children with disabilities because the system is so yes. inflexible Right. And pushes back so hard. Yeah. Um, you know, there is obviously there is an impact to the child, but there is a, an impact to that parent and family as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are yeah. you are hitting it hard. <laughs> 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 that is so I'm like and I um, agree with you because I don't want you know, I love teachers. I'm a teacher. My husband's an RSP teacher, families and my sister. And so it's not, um, I did feel that when I was in the teaching position, like this should be happening, but, and I found myself like sneaking info and yeah. I shouldn't have to do that, but I, you know, it is um, such a disconnect and not that the people are disconnected necessarily, but the systems are disconnected because from yeah. the district level and above everyone who makes those types of laws, are so disconnected from what's happening in the classroom. And it's a business. School's a business. We all know that, you know, yeah. they get money for every day the kid goes to school. Right. Um, regardless if they're passing or not, they want them there. Um, so it is a disconnect. And that was the hardest part teaching. They and budgetarily, they consider like they kind of carve out special education, right? And they look at this as this. Um, you know, I don't know how many times I've been to board meetings or, or read board minutes for school districts where they're, you know, talking about the financial drain. Right. That, that special education has on the, the general fund. And it's, it's such an awful descriptor um, because it, it puts um, parents and families with disabled children into this, you know, this lesser class. Mm-hmm. Um, and identify them as takers from a system that, you know, that if it, well, if we give your child this, well, we're going to not be able to provide books for right. all the other, all the other general education students. It's just um, fundamentally, I think how education is funded is severely flawed. Right. <laughs> um, and I think all children 
are struggling within a system that just is archaic and yeah, antiquated for sure. Yeah, it, it is not well. Um, you know, there might be some districts that are well managed, but it's not universal. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people, you know, both my parents were in education. I spent, you know, at least three, four decades apiece in, in education. Uh, my in-laws, uh, same, it's a family rich with educators. Um, and I think within the constraints of that system, they all try, you know, certainly to put the kids first and to do the best thing possible. But if there isn't, you know, uh, financial support, um, it, it burns those educators out too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Special education. The last time I um, checked, it's like five year kind of burnout. That's a lot of. That's quick. That's a quick turnover. Kind of where people hit their their peak. Right. And that's right. sad. And I see. I know. I. 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 I see where it comes from. Yeah. I see. Well, I mean, you, you go into something like education because you're passionate about it, right? Right. Uh, you want to work with children, um, and then kind of at every turn, the rug's pulled out from under you, right? Your um, your budgets are always being cut. Um, I, I would be surprised if most uh, teachers, especially special education teachers, are being paid, you know, a, a living wage. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not some lucrative field where, um, despite what the uh, work environment might be like, you'd be able to kind of absorb some of those bumps and bruises because. Right. Um, right. Because you're able to kind of. Like, I'm going to the mall dives. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> But you're also not you're also not worried to you, you know you don't have some sort of other financial insecurity right that you're not worried about oh I got to pay rent or the mortgage is due or you know how am I going to pay for you know the kids to be able to go to college th- those types of things so the all of that stuff is kind of sitting in the back of your mind I think as an educator like you know at some point I do need to be able to provide for my own family and and, and worry about um, their future right so it, it, it it's it, it's very sad um, yeah. w- what's happened to the system. Um, but the I think really kind of the thrust of why I wanted to put the story out, though, was to, to give people a slice um, to, so that, um, I, you know, it's, I think that there's been a lot of good things that have come out of bad things, right? Like, a, you know, uh, like I said, the Me Too movement or, or Black Lives Matter, like the that raising awareness, I think, has, right. has, has helped buoy a lot of stuff. Um, so I'm not willing to give up on, you know, on public education or special education. Absolutely but, not. But I think that, but I really think that the way that this problem uh, gets addressed is by, you know, getting it out there um, yeah. and amplifying stories. So if it's my story, great. Or if through what I've done, I can give a platform to other people to be able to share their their stories, um, you know, I think the, the more people learn, the more people are aware, uh, the more allies and support. Uh, and, and really, those allies and that support is what ultimately will drive, you know, at the end of the book, I quote Tip O'Neill, who's the former Speaker of the House back when um, Ronald Reagan was president. And I'm not sure if the quote is actually his or not, but it typically gets attributed to him that all politics are local. Okay. So if there is community pressure to change, mm-hmm. 
um, most school districts are kind of governed by a board of trustees. Um, so there's the, the district itself, but then the, you know, the community oversight is typically done by an elected board. Right. Um, and if you don't, if you can't apply, if you don't apply political pressure uh, to them, you're typically what you want to have happen won't necessarily. Um, and people who have other sorts of privilege will have the opportunity to kind of politically direct those trustees to guide what happens. So a good example would be, um, you know, my story uh, takes place in Davis, California, which is, um, for those of you listening and may not know, is a university town. So there's um, University of California has schools all over the state, right? Berkeley, L.A., mm-hmm. um, and Davis is one of them. And it's a, kind of a sleepy, small you know, people kind of refer to it as like a bedroom community. It's about 15 minutes west of Sacramento, which is state capital. So you get a lot of political influence um, in the area, but it is heavily sold um, to young families that this is a great place to, to raise your kids because the, the public schools are so great. You don't have to worry uh, that the public schools are bad and that you've got to send your kid to a private school. You live in Davis. It's this panacea, right? It's, we have this wonderful supportive public education system. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what happens is that you end up with um, people who want what they want for their child um, and they end up in positions of power. So they end up in roles uh, either in the schools themselves or as members of that um, school board, and they have political influence mm-hmm. and influence over what the schools um, tend to spend money on. Right. So there's a very strong and very robust um, gifted program in Davis. Um, yet there's a very small and very weak and very underfunded special education program in Davis. And a lot of that is driven by po- the community political pressure that you know, we want to have our children really exceed in our public schools. And these are supposed to be this bright, shining crown jewel of, of the town. And it's something that parents can point to. It's something that, you know, real estate agents can point to. Right. It's going to help my property values. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have the time to be able to lobby effectively that school board. So I'm kind of a long-winded way of saying this, but if we band all of our stories together right, um, and that we kind of help everyone realize that, yes, we've all kind of had these awful experiences, but they're, and as unique as each one is really, if you look at them in aggregate, it is not a unique story. Mm-hmm. We too have a large political block that can influence you know, that political pressure in your town, with your school board, with your school district. Right. You know, the, like I said earlier, the statistics I was quoting, you know, even if you just took the amount of children enrolled in special education, which is hovers a little bit around 13, 14 percent, mm-hmm. that's still a pretty significant population in your town. And then when you add in the other children that are disabled, but not identified as being in special education, right? You know, that's one in five children. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot of people. And if yeah. your child is being underserved, your voice deserves to be heard and it should be heard. Absolutely. 
Um, so, like I said, if we can kind of band these stories together and bring a political will, kind of build a grassroots, you know, our own kind of Me Too movement or kind of right to belong movement is right. um, how I'm choosing to brand this. Move it forward and, you know, get that political interest of those people in power to be able to change the system. You know, things aren't going to be 100% perfect, but we right. can start making incremental progress. I am on board with that <laughs> on both on both sides um, for sure because it. I think another is, um, issue was when we're talking about championing this this um, cause is that the parents when they're in it. I shouldn't us while we're in it. We're the parents too, but. I feel like I have more of a confidence about me because I know that I know what routes to take. Right. So I don't, I believe in trying to have a relationship with um, the IEP team first and, and the people above the IEP team. I have relationships with them all, Um, but all parents aren't um, as confident or knowledgeable about that and they don't have the time. I remember being a teacher saying so many, oh, I said so many things out of just not knowing. I'd be like, well, one of my good friends, she was just on and she has, both her sons are on the spectrum. And I had her youngest son (laughs) in my preschool class. And I was like, well, you know what you could do is you could read, you know, these books. Cause I I went to school, right, Erin? And she looked at me and she was like, I have two autistic sons. Like I don't have time at the, they, um, they were both in mod severe. I don't have time to read these books. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's up. That's why we need allies. Right. Yeah, you, you need allies. Um, like I said earlier, one of the, um, and I can think of a few families in particular, um, cause there are really some points where I was writing where I was like, okay, what am I, what am I doing this for? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it simply just to, you know, get, is it cathartic, right? Is it just to get this out on the page so that I feel better about myself and I can kind of flush it, right. Get those feelings out and just set it aside and be done with it. Um, by nature, um, my wife might argue, <laughs> but I don't know that I'm necessarily immediately argumentative or confrontational. Mm-hmm. And I can think of a handful of families um, that I know that really, if it's not in your nature, um, and I'm not suggesting that you're argumentative, but you're prepared, right? You come in educated, you're going to figure out what it is that's happening, and you're going to say, no, this is what I've learned, and this is what I need, you know, this is what my family needs. Right. Uh, and this is what we expect. But if your baseline um, kind of personality isn't to be challenging like that mm-hmm. or isn't to kind of confront, you know, if somebody pushes back and you just kind of, OK, you know, right. you're the school and I guess you guys know best. Mm-hmm. Um, those people, I think, need our, the most help we can provide. Right. Um, we need to be their voices, too. So mm-hmm. it's it's really a. You know, it, it, it's it, funny is the wrong word, but, you know, if you sign your kids up for sports, right, like you don't have to advocate to get them on the T-ball, right? You didn't, you didn't have to buy a book about, you know, how do I sign my kid up for Pop Warner football? You know, it's just it's not it's uh, 
this world and the system isn't built for them and it's not built for parents like us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, if I've got one goal is it's to shift that so that, you know, me, you know, the, the person that's going to be coming along, you know, if my children happen to have children that have disabilities, they don't have to go through the same yes. fraught system that we did. It would be more of a, you know, it would be more of a, a helping hand rather than a pushback mm-hmm. uh, that they get to experience. All right. We're back, Aaron. Thank you for being patient. There were some technical diff- difficulties. I think that maybe the Santa Ana's here down here, or I'm not sure. <sighs> we got it. We got a, We don't have your Santa Ana's, but we've got, we've got wind. We got um, okay. Well, Tell us a little bit more. We talked a lot about um, special education. Definitely, if you're open to it, want to get back because we're, we're, I think we're good. We got some, I got a choo-choo train starting. Thoughts um, that you touched on that I've thought about for a long time. So I want to hear a little bit more about your family, though, also. Um, Tell us, tell us about the rights. we are, we're family of four. Uh, we're almost outnumbered by dogs at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, in the, in the story, um, really kind of that was, I don't know, everybody kind of has something that's foundational, I think, to their family. Uh, mm-hmm. And for us, um, I opened it up with really what was our first home. I mean, we, we, we had owned before, but the move for us to Davis was, you know, that first house, right. Which um, I think kind of is a special milestone in, mm-hmm. in a family's history. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, I was raised with, with dogs. My wife wasn't. Um, and we wanted to, you know, make the house a home. Right. And, and, a, and a dog does that. Yes. So at least, for a lot of people, it does. If you're a cat person, I apologize. No, you dogs. So it, uh, you know, that's kind of our, you know, so origin story, so to speak. It's, um, we really believe in, you know, well, they're all, they've all been some various form of, of a rescue. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's kind of who, you know, it's part of, of who we are as a family. Um, and that's, um, as Daisy, our first, um, you grew older and, and ultimately passed, um, you know, you always, you're trying to fill that hole, I guess, somehow. Um, mm-hmm. and that's kind of mutated into, uh, now, now three of them um, <laughs> here, here in this house, which can get a little crazy at times, right. but, um, no, we're, um, I don't know. We're getting a little, um, sentimental here lately because our sons so have two kids, Okay. Um, my oldest is now 17 and is a high school senior. My baby too. Uh, yeah. Right. Your right. Senior year. I know what a, what an awful year to be oh. your senior year. Right. For your first he's, baby. too. Oh my gosh. So, so many things that, you know, he's missing out and I don't know. Y- y- my son's a, a runner um, and to miss out on the cross country season and then probably to miss out on a big chunk, if not all of the track season is going to, wow. is, has been rough on him that, and you know, he, he too is like, Oh, I need to go to class. I need to go to school. I need to see my friends. Right. Uh, that, that's been rough. Um, 
my daughter um, just turned um, 15. Um, so she's uh, uh, starting, well, this is her freshman year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been a, you know, a virtual, uh, virtual freshman year. I'm not trying to copy you, but I have a freshman also. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So it's been, you know, we've got it's crazy. We're at, we're at, you know, opposite ends of the high school spectrum. Right. Um, and they've each kind of got their own different perspectives, but it's been a, you know, it's been an, an interesting year. Mm-hmm. We've moved, um, you know, the, as the story is, uh, you know, it's a true story in the book, obviously, but um, because of circumstances, we ended up moving back to the Bay Area where uh, my wife's family is from. But uh, that was really was driven by uh, school access mm-hmm. uh, accommodation. So, um, you know, I think with we had a, um, I think a pretty normal quote. I'll put this in quotes: normal uh, first child experience, right? Uh-huh. You don't know, you know, you have no idea what you're doing. Right. As a parent, right? You're just happy that you know they're they're alive and and doing whatever they do. Um and you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you're supposed to be worried about, but they just kind of do what they're doing and they progress. Right. And they eventually, you know, grow into a teenager that's talking back to you and (laughs) right. So that's like the kind of typical trajectory. Um and then our daughter, our second, um, you know, when those things just didn't start happening, um, you know, like, oh, well, you know, when did Ryan start crawling or when did he start walking or when was he rolling over? Um, and then to have that reinforced with those, um, you know, those pediatrician visits, right, where they're checking all of those developmental milestones. Right. Um so I think we, we knew pretty early on um, that there was definitely some differences. Um, originally, you know, there was the concern that there might be something kind of medically uh, mm-hmm. or organically wrong. Um, I, in retrospect, um, I, I think it was a, you know, not scary necessarily uh, time, but an, a time of concern, I think, for most of the family, mm-hmm. uh, kind of not knowing uh, what was going on. Um, she, it's weird to say this, but it was, I think really a a good thing that there was early identification. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of the only way early identification happened for us is because she happened to have her head circumference happened to be just larger than, than average. Mm-hmm. And then when we they kind of coupled that with some of the develop mile, developmental milestones that were being missed, um, that sent us down kind of a medical diagnostic okay. uh, route. And that really um, got us to a place where early, early on, we were like, okay, you know, let's, well, let's, you know, let's make sure that she doesn't have a tumor. Let's make sure right. that she doesn't have hydrocephalus. And once you kind of remove those big, big, scary things off your list. Right. Okay. Well, all right. So what kind of help does she need? Right. Um, And we were lucky early on to kind of serendipitously bump into someone who works um, in those early, uh, in that kind of early intervention world. Yeah. um, And set us on the right track. Uh, We also, I mean, fortunately happened to know just purely through, 
random friendships, knowing other families that had um, kind of marched down this path a few years ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of back to my earlier thing, why it's so important that we yeah. share stories, right? Well, it's um, about that too, yeah. Right, because it, 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 it helps build that awareness even in folks that don't know that this is going to be their path. Right. Uh, ultimately. Um, and I got to say, you know, um, sh- we started early intervention services uh, around 10 or 11 months mm-hmm. uh, with my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were happy. I mean, we were thankful. It was um, seemed to be the right thing. It seemed to be a way of helping her access the world that we as parents, you know, weren't really capable of figuring out or, mm-hmm. or providing for her. Um, but then that, um, shift comes, right? So those early intervention services, at least in California, um, or in our neck of the woods was covered by our regional center, which is, yeah. Right. And that's essentially kind of County based. Right. Um, and that was fine. There was never any sort of pushback. There was always some evaluations and, you know, if, if you're missing milestones, great. We check the boxes and, you know, we, these are the services that we would provide to you. Um, great. But then at age three, right, that transitions. Yes. Um, and that transitions to the, the responsibility of the school district. Yeah. Um, and we had kind of known enough people uh, that had, you know, experienced that, um, that transition point and it had, been from, you know, folks receiving really intensive, uh, much, many more services than we were Mm -hmm. um, in those early intervention years. And then this in an immediate abrupt end. Yes. It just, it's over. Um, No, we don't see the educational impact. Right. has to be some sort of educational impact in order to continue to maintain these services. So we had a a very brief um, interaction um, around that age three, and we knew we didn't want to necessarily subject her to the trauma of all that testing, mm-hmm. uh, uh, knowing that the ultimate outcome would be that they were going to remove or not, you know, provide any services. So thankfully, we were in a position where we were able to maintain them through the regional center mm-hmm. um, until we hit age five when we entered kindergarten and then. Uh, really, it would have been criminal for us not to, you know, advocate and pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it. I actually think that if there were a way um, for those um, for those regional centers, that early intervention services to maintain that through age five. Right. I believe it would help um, build kind of a foundational kind of case response report, so to speak, or uh, enough evidence that by the time you hit kindergarten um, and were presenting schools with the amount of information that you then had, it would be more substantial and it would be harder to refute and it would be easier to obtain services. You know, H3 is typically pretty tough, right? Because there's, you know, a lot of variation and it's, um, they're still really, really young. Um, there's a lot of development that happens between uh, brain development that would happen between three and five. Mm-hmm. Those, um, those are critical intervention years, right? Yeah. You know, the, the, the brain is still growing and still forming synapses. And if 
um, you can help them learn access and accommodation in those in in that time. Um, you're really doing those kids and those families a service. Um, you know, it falls with you know California's first five initiative, right? Yep. Like first mm -hmm. five years are, are critical. So we we ran into a roadblock pretty quickly at age five when we uh, approached the school. You know, we had this whole you know, I've still got them bankers boxes full of assessments, reports, you know, you name it. Um, and were dismissed out of hand. Um, just um, not necessarily um, just a dismissal, but an active pushback, an active fight um, just to get our foot in the door. Right. Um and that was for me personally, and I think for the family, if you're asking kind of generally how we function as a family, I think really that was a breaking point uh, mm -hmm. for us or um, a step in our own kind of evolution as a family, because it was really that point where, um, and so many families with disabled children have to do this. You have to, at the same time, point to what's quote unquote wrong with yeah. your child, mm -hmm. right? But then you are still their parent and you're still tasked with maintaining their humanity. Yes. Right? So it becomes this, this almost this internal you know, yeah. fight in your own head of having to constantly point to like I said, quote unquote, what is wrong or point right. to the bad or point That's to what they can't do. Mm -hmm. um, when in fact, it's the system that is can't accommodate them, right? Mm -hmm. It's our culture that can't accommodate them. It's not them. Right. Um, but then you still, you know, you have to love and nurture and know that this person is just as much a person as my other child. Right. And, and how you got to hold those two things together. And that becomes such a fight. Yes. Um, and it doesn't go away until mm -hmm. you're kind of out of public school, really. And then you're out into the kind of out into the unknown of post-school right. uh, and how that, that advocacy works. But it's um, for us, that was transformative. I mean, those early years, um, so thankful for the help that we received and the therapists and the, uh, the folks that we went and, you know, we'd, we'd go to clinic or they would, you know, we had folks coming into the house. Um, amazing, amazing people, dedicated people. And then just that, you know, that 180 shift right. uh, was, was really hard. Um, I mean, that's kind of the arc really of the story is that ultimately uh, of the book is ultimately what does that do to people? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you, when I, when I, um, just getting ready for, for publication, you know, I sat down and, and reread the book, mm -hmm. uh, just going through, you know, line by line and you're, you know, looking for errors and, and, and whatnot. And I got done with it. Um, it, it had been a while since I'd actually read it and it was refreshing in the sense that I read it and I thought, you know what? I'm not the same person I was when I wrote it. Mm -hmm. um, because as I was a, a large chunk of when I was writing it, we were in the throes of things and we were in the thick of it. Um, and it was eye-opening, right? I really had become different. Right. 
and not necessarily in good ways, right? You become, you yeah. become changed. Um, yeah. To be able to now, I mean, we're in a really good place, um, both developmentally and in, in the education system that we're in now. Um, and so being able to step back and kind of take a deep breath and, and reassess things, um, it's been eye-opening. I think you're right about um, going back to the areas of three to five. That was the age that I taught. And mm -hmm. like that I taught by what um, is Montsevere um, preschool. So when they came in my class, they pretty much had no um, language, no sign language, vocal, pretty much none. And by the time they were five, there was so much growth. I mean, so much growth, not that everyone was speaking, but they were able to communicate in different ways. It was just, it blew blew my mind, really. And so it is um, kind of abrupt to, even in a, a neurotypical child, three is just so young, you know, they're still- Yeah, it's very so young. Um, so yeah, that, you know, to stop the services that they were getting at early intervention, it's very um, family oriented. The IFSP is family yeah. goals and- sisters and brother, the whole family, whoever is involved um, yeah. in the play therapy, then when they come to the home or into the different services, very play-based and very family or oriented. And then it's like, oh, you're three now. Right. And as it should be, right, it should, it should be inclusive, right? It should be yeah. about, right? Because it, yes, you're there to support the that child with a disability, but it, everybody needs to participate in that. And you think about what the, you know, the family would do with a neurotypical child. Well, I, you know, I've got that case example in my own home. Mm -hmm. At three, we had our son in preschool, mm -hmm. right? Because there's brain development happening, right? right. And there's the, the need for social interaction. And there's, you know, all this kind of learning and stuff that's happening. Those years are critical. And right. to have that immediately cut off um, is a real, is a real disservice. The other thing I just want to make sure I touch on, because I think it's, really important is that when you don't support these children, um, you're affecting more than just the child and you're affecting more than just their family. Right. Um, so um, in Davis and I think in a lot of other um, school districts, there's a tendency to kind of deny, deny, deny. Mm -hmm. And then at some point you reach a crisis point where um, the school really then starts to recognize that we we can't do anything. We don't have the, the power or the ability to support this child and accommodate them. Um, and oftentimes they end up sending these kids to, um, you know, other non-public school placements, right. For, for children, quote unquote, like them. Right. Um, and really it's a different form of segregation. Um, it's taking them out of their own community and placing them elsewhere, which is awful for the kid mm -hmm. um, and that family that has to deal with that logistical nightmare of, well, I live in Davis, but my kid's being sent to school, you know, 45 minutes from here. How am I supposed to make that work? But one of the other arguments I try to use a lot because I don't think people um, think about it necessarily is that as good as it is for that disabled child to be, you know, quote, mainstreamed or um, given access to mm -hmm. the, the regular classroom and mm -hmm. those neurotypical peers, 
I think it's equally important for those neurotypical peers to have access to that disabled child. Because when your worldview, especially when you're growing and learning, when your worldview includes people that are different than you are, you become much more accepting and much more inclusive um, and much more willing to bring those types of people to the table uh, ultimately. And that's why in that long-term consequences, right? So, Mm. you know, it would allow you to then think, oh, well, if I'm going to deal with its X, Y, Z issue at work, I need to make sure that I'm bringing this person to the boardroom as well. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I mean, you've seen it, you know, you see it with women, you see it with people of color. It also needs to include the disability community as well. Absolutely. Inclusion. Um, I totally agree. Um, like I said, growing up and I'm sure you growing up, I didn't see that. And I still don't really see it in my children's classrooms until um, I brought it up when I started teaching special special education. And I feel like I'm a changed woman because once I started teaching, I didn't even know when I was going, I got my BA in English and I taught general ed at first. I didn't even know that that was, not that I didn't know it was a course, but I didn't, I wasn't aware, made aware of it. Really, I wasn't right. exposed to um, like this is also an opportunity. Special education, it really um, opened opened my eyes, and then we were blessed to adopt our son. And that internal struggle is is real. Like yeah. I literally feel all kinds of things when his like IEP has to come up because like I have to show what he's not doing and then how it's affecting him at least two years, you know, behind. And then you feel like, Oh my gosh, he's, he's, he learned his, you know, he learned a few sight words. Oh no, he's going to lose his, (laughs) it's going to lose his service if he shows that he, you know, is making growth. So it's. ah, You you feel like, yeah, you feel like you can't celebrate, you know, the, their achievements or their growth in certain areas because you feel like it will be used against you, mm-hmm. right? It, it will be, well, see, now we can withdraw or pull back or fade this kind of support or access, which I always, you know, I always revert to um, visual descriptors because I think people can, uh, it, it's, it's helpful, help more helpful for people to understand it. You know, it's, you wouldn't take a ramp away from someone who's in a wheelchair just because they got in the building. Right. 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 So doing the same same thing with children who are autistic or children who might have, you might be ADHD Mm -hmm. or a specific learning disability or dyslexic. You don't removal of that form of access is cruel. (laughs) And, but you as a parent are sitting there clinging to, Right. You know, all of these, quote, deficiencies and having to look at what's, you know, like I said, what's wrong or mm-hmm. quote, wrong with your child, just just so that you can keep that ramp there. Right. And it right. can be crazy making and yeah. it it really can affect your your psyche and your emotional health as a parent. Right. And just as a family, like we um, they're siblings and you you got you have a siblings there, you know, when the parents are already um, feelings of pressure, of course, it spills over, right? Like when I go get ready for the IEP, it's like, get out. I have to get all my stuff together. I have to, where's this thing? Where's that? And it's less time. And and I, I don't want it to be like that either, Aaron. No. That's why I chose um, Empowered. Like 
it's not a negative. I don't want parents to, because I feel like um, since we use the word fight um, a lot and then like IEPs are so legal, people feel like, um, and, and, and it is necessary sometimes to possibly get a lawyer or an advocate to take your legal routes, but it's also important for you to just know what your, what your rights are. Right. Because I think that causes, if you go, it's like kindergarten, you're like, okay, I'll step back second grade, probably about third grade. You're like, you know what? I'm done with this and I need something to do. And if you knew ahead of time, like, okay, these are the different routes I could take before getting bubbling over and getting so frustrated. Um, and even when you do know, cause I told you, I get, I get, I still get frustrated. My husband had to kick me under the table this last I was like, first of all, I'm not confrontational, but it's my baby. Um, Right. Right. And um, and we're looking at it as a parent. Now I can say this as a parent from I'm looking at all the progress that they made because of these supports and how he can show. Oh, I'm getting emotional. How he can show how he can do this is just in a different way. But he's he's got it. He can express it differently. He's got the right answer. Right. Um, he has to express it differently. Those things are like, yay, you know, and so but we're like to take it away, we is um it, it was frustrating. Yeah. Right. Proving, proving, proving that my child deserves to have these uh, supports that are going to help him access what everyone else can access. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a backwards way of thinking because it's um, because you just want to scream, look, when you provide the appropriate accommodations and access and services, look what they're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. Look, you've granted them access to their education. Now look what they can do. Why would you not want to continue to foster that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, gosh, I mean, there's, there's a, it's just so crazy making. There's a chapter in the book that I, I actually wrote during an IEP meeting because I was so, I was so frustrated by that process. The exact thing that you're describing, right? That you want to be able to celebrate that success. Right. Um, you want to point out that, yeah, you did. Thank you so much. You get, you provided the right amount of access and look what they were capable of doing. Why would you want to pull that away? Mm-hmm. And you get stuck in these circular, just death spiral discussion and it and it becomes again you're right it it is a fight um i posted uh gosh a week or so ago i don't know if you saw that on the one of my instagrams was i've got a colleague at work now who's has a young child and is now kind of you know swimming in our world and, and walking into that um those meetings with with schools and trying to figure out how to navigate the system I said, well, hey, I've got a bunch of resources. I've got all these books that, you know, I bought and I, I will, you know, gladly give them to you. I'm, I don't, I'm done right. with it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm looking at them um, and, you know, on the cover, you know, it's fight for your child, advocate for your child. You know, your child ha- is entitled to these rights and it, it, it automatically puts it into a, a confrontational right. um situation and it's um unfortunately i think that's by design and 
both the parents and I think the teachers get stuck in that trap is that mm-hmm. it, it, it is inherently a, a conflict. Yeah. On the other side, it's like, this is a very legal document as a teacher. Yeah. You got all the eyes, you know, it's, it's a, well, we use SACE or web IEP yeah. and the, we don't want no red checks and red marks. And so with that pressure, um, when I, when I was teaching, like it was super stressful to have IEP meeting because I didn't want to make any mistakes. I don't want to get not, not sued. I don't want to go into the legal process of the other side of it. Um, and it takes the family out of it. And that's what I want to put it back into it. This is a family unit. I don't, I'm not trying to get anything that my child doesn't need. <laughs> right. And I need you to work with me because you are the, you're with my kid for three hours a day. If it's preschool, eight, seven hours a day. And we need to be on the same playing playing field. Really. Right. We're, we're on the same playing field. And it's really about having teachers, um, not, not the teachers. Teachers are probably, they're the ones that are doing the action, but the system, the educational system, special education system, understand that it's not just about that one year. We're thinking about these big skills that they are already um, have a deficit in, we need to start working on them now so we can provide them with the best opportunity opportunities for their future. Yeah. It's not just about kindergarten, you know, because that kindergarten team is going to be bye-bye Josiah when it's kindergarten right. time. and they might, they'll love him because he's so cute and they'll see him, but they're going to be focused on their next set of 30 kids. Right. And we, and us as the, as the family, we're thinking, how is this first grade skill going to turn into the second grade skill? And if he missed this, then we need to, you know, kind of go back. We're thinking about their future and we want to provide all the possibilities that we can for, for our kids mm-hmm. and find out what works for them. What's their best source way of communi- communicating? What are their strengths so that we can focus on those things to get them prepared because we can't just wait till they're 15 and be like, Oh, okay, well we want him to have a job. Well, how is he going to communicate those if he's not, um, if he has these other like processing, Joe has processing, how's he going to have that? Well, I need to start working on that now so that we can start, okay, well, this isn't working out for him. This works for him. And so I think that that's super important when we're, you know, talking to families and talking to districts. We need to do some district trainings, I think, Erin. I think we're here. (laughs) From that, well, I know it's about the money, but the, we got to make our voices a little bit heard, and it's not a negative thing. That's you know, that's another thing. When you fight for something, it's fight you fight for something. It's out of love, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the word. The advocacy is out of love for our kids, like, right. and it's not um, it's not a bad thing. It's not right. a bad thing to know what your rights are and to stand up for them and to speak up. And that's what advocacy is: is to speak up. For someone that can't speak up for themselves. Right. Right. And so it's turned into a like legal, you know, we're going to get you kind of thing. But even if you do that one year, that for that one year, it can happen again. And then you right. have three great years. You have an IEP annually until right. unless your child opts out of special education or they turn 22. Right. So you can have it a good couple of years and then you can hit my friend hit um, junior high school. She had great all through K through 
sixth grade and then uh, fifth grade, then sixth grade here. Er, Roadblock. Yeah. Then she got an advocate for that one year, though. And then she seven, eight, then had high school was another like roadblock. She's like, I can't, you know, afford to do continue to do that every year. Um, And and you shouldn't have to to educate your child creating a bill. Right. To to hire a lawyer to educate your child. No, that's not crazy. It's no, it's not. It's not. Well, besides it not being financially sustainable for families, right. right? I mean, what what family? I mean, not that there aren't some, but what family really has the financial resources to to you know hire an attorney, retain an attorney, have that attorney at every IEP meeting, have that attorney you know submitting billable hours for all of those documents that are being reviewed constantly, right? And we know IEPs are document based meetings, yeah. document based. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a it's labor intensive and it's not cheap. The other thing I would say too is that you once you are branded the the parent, yeah, that right? mom, mm-hmm. that mom, <laughs> that dad, that, <laughs> that dad that brought that advocate or brought that attorney, forever you will be that parent, right? Mm-hmm. And there will always be an equal, equally measured amount of resistance to you that they perceive that you brought to the situation, right? right. Oh, they're they're litigious, right? Mm-hmm. That's all they want to do is sue. Yes, right. But we know um, it's just like what you were saying about, you know, the kindergarten. Well, you know, we got this kindergarten group and the next year it'll be first grade. The parent is taking the long view, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm here because I'm concerned about access for my child. They need right. to be able to access that education. They just happen to be in the kindergarten phase this year. Right. This year it'll be first, following your second, you know, and so on. But to your point <clears throat> about how do you, how do you get them to see that, you know, one of the kind of political pressures I wanted to, to put on my district was looking at, you know, benchmarking data. So in Davis particular, the high school graduation rate is phenomenal. I mean, mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it's a, you know, a, college a, town. it's you a college it. town. It's the, I think it's the second most educated city in the U S aside from like Georgetown. Right. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, you know, the number of people with master's degrees and doctoral degrees, or it, it's just that concentration of quote unquote educated people. But when you, so you look at those high school graduation rates and is it really a function of what the school is doing or is it really kind of what their family is doing that's helping them graduate? You know, okay. You could have those discussions and those arguments, but when you look at the children with disabilities, and you look at the children who are on IEPs and you look at their graduation rates as comparison to the high school graduation rates of kind of the general neurotypical population, they're drastically lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and that should be a red flag right. for anybody in that school district and anybody in that system. So, you know, if people on their own, you know, kind of ethics and morals aren't going to take that as something that they see as a problem because we know it as, as parents, mm-hmm. right? right? We know that it's going to be a chore to get them to graduate. Right. We know that it's going to be uh, going to take an additional effort that maybe they will finish high school, but maybe they won't meet. So in California, right there, you've got, you can graduate and meet the UC or CSU requirements right. at, at the time of graduation or you don't, and you mm-hmm. just kind of get a high school certificate. Mm-hmm. So, and we know for children with disabilities, that rate is 
drastically different than it is for the regular population. So if you can tie that kid in kindergarten, that family that's advocating, yeah. I know they need access and they need it now mm-hmm. because I know, right, that whatever it is, 12, 13 years later, they have a significantly lower chance of graduating from high school. Or if they do, they're not going to make the CSU, UC requirements and be able to go to a four-year university. Right. Right. How, how can I get my district to understand that? How can I get them to focus on this achievement gap? About your book launch, which is so exciting. Um, Coming up here in January, 2021. And you could share with how, how can they get the book? Um, What's going on with that? And, and you had a super cool new logo. You guys I had do. a contest. Yeah. Yeah. So had a contest. We've got a logo. It's on. The, if you want to see, it's uh, at the website. So, yeah. So, the book launch will be January 26th. Um, if you want to learn more, I'd love to tell you more. Uh, so, you can follow me on Instagram if you want for kind of latest and greatest updates, but all sorts of information. And there's actually some freebies on my website. So, um, www, uh, author Aaron Wright. Com. I have uh, the first few chapters of the book uh, will be there for free. Uh, I actually also did a, a narration of uh, one of my favorite chapters. Um, so that's available for an audio download. Um, and then there's ways to contact me and, and learn kind of more about my family and, and our story uh, on the website as well. Uh, but yeah, we're very much uh, looking forward to the launch um, on the 26th. So that's going to be so exciting. I can't yeah. wait to finish it up. And yeah. again, the website is www.authorerinwright.com. Um, pre-sales? Pre-sales are live now. So if okay. you want to copy, if you want to copy of 13 doors, uh, go to the website. Um, there's a uh, very easy links to follow. Um, and uh, it, uh, I, believe they should be, um, we should be able to ship on or about the launch date. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all there at the website. Um, pre-sales, little freebies, freebie snippets. We have, yep. As my teenagers would say, we have merch, uh, t-shirts and mugs and just about anything you can think of. Um, They'll, they'll put it on a t-shirt or a mug or socks for you. Awesome. So, awesome. Yeah, awesome. it's very cool. So yeah. if there's one thing, not one thing, you don't have to limit to one thing, but how could you sum up the book, um, the heart, the heart of the book? Yeah. So the, I would say the like kind of the arc of the story um, really is, is my transformation as a parent. Okay. Um, you know, that from those kind of early naive days of kind of that, those conceptions of what you think it means to be a parent and what you think it means to be a family mm-hmm. um, to where uh, essentially where I am today and how you kind of have to pull yourself inside out and um, really examine who you are and, and what you believe in and how that, how you ultimately kind of become an advocate in whatever form of advocate you can be. Right. Okay. Awesome. And what do you, what does your family think about this? The book? 
What are they? Um, well, yeah. So, uh, yeah. The um, gosh, when did I give it to? Uh, I didn't tell anybody I was writing it. Um, okay. I, I kind of kept it a uh, secret. Um, you know, almost as my own kind of personal journal. Not really that it was a journal. I knew that I knew ultimately what I wanted it to become. Um, so I gave it to my wife a few Mother's Days uh, ago. Mm-hmm. Said, "Hey, look, this is what I did. You know, what do you think?" And um, she tore through it pretty quickly and and uh, really liked it. Um, but the um, one stamp of approval I really wanted was my daughter's. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is um, clearly the story very much is, uh, revolves around our experience with her and, and how we had to navigate things. Um, but I tried really hard not to voice her, right? It's, it's my story as opposed to hers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted her to be okay with, um, how that representation came across. So, uh, for me, you know, one of my biggest critics, I mean, we, I, I've sent it to a lot of people, obviously different readers and different editors and had various input, but the one I really, um, was concerned the most about was whether or not, uh, she thought it was, yeah. Um, you know, a fair and accurate representation. Mm-hmm. So, and and then two, just being okay with, are you okay with your story kind of yes. being out, out there in the public? Um, but um, she's a very good and kind soul and um, very much wants to help other people. And I think she understands and feels like this story would be helpful for, for other families like ours, especially, um, Especially for you, know, you touched on earlier. Especially for uh, families with girls uh, yeah. who are autistic, because there's, um, you know, there's no evidence that it is any less common. Right. Uh, but it's there's certainly tons of evidence that it is um, uh, diagnosed or identified uh, much less frequently in girls uh, than, it is, than it is in boys. So, uh, and it's you know there can be long term, uh, long term uh, consequences to that that delay or just not identifying so i I think she feels like that would be um in this story helpful for other people to to know know. well we i appreciate that and i'm sure um the other families will appreciate that when you're searching searching for um when you're first going through a diagnosis um you search for other things to look to i i know i do and I think what got me from being so like, oh, these are all the deficits when they read it to you and you just be like, oh, is actually when I was teaching is seeing my old students. Now they're 15. Now I'm dating myself. Um, <laughs> when I had them when they were three to five and just to be able to like mm-hmm. FaceTime them, thank God for Facebook and Instagram and connect with them. I'm friends with a lot of my old students and to be able to see them. It's like, I remember when you were Joe's age, you know, um, at five, at six, and now you're 15, and you're showing me your football, you know, their little their hobbies, and it's just such a growth, and that um, gives me hope and inspiration, and let you know that you know all the things that you're doing out there, parents aren't um, in vain, and that there's people out there giving you virtual hugs, yeah. and um, and yeah, I hope that everyone goes and grabs the book again. Uh, 13 Doors, we're going to have Aaron back because I, we just had a lot, he's got a lot of, a lot of gems that he um, drops around here. 
And <laughs> is there anything else that you would like to say before we sign off? Um, no, well, I really appreciate what, um, one, you having me here, and two, what you do, um, not only as a parent, but also as a teacher and an advocate. Um, er, I would say early on, um, you touched on it, people look for support, or right? They look for, whether it's a book you're trying to find or um, a person, having a lifeline is huge. Um, having somebody that you can bounce things off of somebody that's a resource, somebody that has been there. Um, just being that person is, is really important. So for, and I think it's, um, I, I don't know that, uh, folks like you get enough credit. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It is my pleasure and my joy to find, to help parents just, be empowered. That's the good word that I use, just to be empowered. So we want to enjoy our babies too. Yeah. <laughs> we want to enjoy yeah. the babies, celebrate their moments also. So it's important that we that we get that message out there. Yeah. Well, thank you once again. I've hogged yeah. up lots of days, but now that I have access to you, I'll be hogging up some more of your, <laughs> yeah. your days. It's all, good. It's all yeah. good stuff. It's all good stuff. So thank you so much for joining me and um, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys all so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on what's next. Uh